So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about, um, about vision. And, um, and where's my Bible? There it is. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. You can turn there if you want. And while you're turning there, in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, you know, these famous verses we quote all the time as least as charismatics. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on what? All, not some, all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will what? Dream dreams, even upon your bond servants. And in those days will I pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And um, I, I was thinking about uh, how, sorry, hard to multitask here. I was thinking about that verse some years ago, two or three years ago. And I was thinking about how in the last days God's going to pour his spirit out on all flesh. Not some flesh, all flesh. And the manifestation of God pouring out his spirit is that people were going to, old men would dream dreams, young men would see visions, and, and, and people would prophesy. And, you know, I don't think that he's talking about in that scripture that you're going to go to sleep and have a dream. I, I don't think he's talking about that old men are just going to go to sleep and have a dream. I think he's talking about the fact that old men are going to begin to dream again. That, that old, old people are going to begin to dream again. In other words, instead of being disillusioned, instead of, you know, you know what happens when you're, you, you, you know, I, we have eight grandkids. When your granddaughter, your grandson says, I, I want to play for the NBA. I, I want to be an astronaut. We have this thing inside of us that says, no, you know, you, you can't, no, listen, I feel like I need to protect you from disappointment, you know? And it's like, oh, listen, there's only a few astronauts in the world. You know, your chances of being uh, an NBA basketball player, and we, and we become dream killers. And yet God says, in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit, and even old men are going to begin to dream again. And I, I, I really believe that there's something about uh, this outpouring that causes us to be able to believe that we were born to make a difference that we were born to change the world. And I, I believe that when you hang around Jesus, something happens to you. You know, when the disciples hung around Jesus, they all argued about who was the greatest. All of them. In fact, the argument got so bad, James and John got their mother involved. <laughs> Do you remember that? And James and John's mother said to Jesus, you know, can you, you know, can you grant me one wish? And Jesus said, oh, what is it? Can you... Can you, can you grant me the wish that my sons, James and John, would sit at your left and right hand in the kingdom? And it says that when she asked that question, it says the rest of the disciples were indignant. You know why they're indignant? Because they didn't think about getting their mother involved. <laughs> there's, something, there's something about hanging around Jesus that causes you to feel like you were born to make a difference. I'm telling you, I feel like... You know, I, there are people, they go in the prayer house, we have this 24-hour prayer house, and I love it, and it's, it's awesome, I believe in prayer, but if you don't come out of that prayer house full of hope, you didn't talk to the right guy. I'm telling you, I, I am so tired of, of fear, and, and people prophesying fear, and people releasing fear over the nations. Listen, it doesn't take, it doesn't take any faith at all to, say, to, look at, to listen to CNN and get your prophecies from CNN. Or talk about how bad the economy is going to be, or you know uh, how the economy is going to crash, or how the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, or whatever. I don't care what party you're in. It's just like it's just like it's. You can just read the New York Times and get what the prophets are saying. And I think that we're supposed to. 
I, I don't think prophecy is calling things that are as though they are, but I think it's calling things that are not as though they are. I don't think that I'm supposed to go down to the valley of dry bones. In the book of Ezekiel, God takes Ezekiel down to the valley of dry bones, and he says to, the, to Ezekiel, can these bones live? He doesn't say, aren't these bones dead? He said, can these bones live? And Ezekiel, being wise, says to God, well, you know. <laughs> I'm sure he's thinking, well, <laughs> the answer is no, but you asked the question, so it, it, it begs a new answer. And God says, prophesy to the bones. I don't know if you got this. He didn't say prophesy about the bones. He said prophesy to the bones. How many of you understand that prophecy is foretelling and forthtelling? Foretelling means I'm telling you the future, and forthtelling means I'm causing the future. And he begins to prophesy to the dry bones. He doesn't say, oh, that, that, that skeleton right there, that was Johnny, and Johnny was 18 years old. I don't know where we get this kind of prophetic ministry, but that's not the prophetic ministry of the Bible. He didn't say prophesy. He didn't say give a word of knowledge. You know, how many bones are there? Ezekiel, you, it, it, was that a woman or a man? Well, I believe. No, he said prophesy to the bones. And he begins to prophesy to the bones. And you know the bones stand up. And he said prophesy to the sinews and prophesy to the flesh and then prophesy to the breath. And suddenly a mighty army arises from the dry valley of bones. And I think there's just something about moving out of what you see with your eyes and moving into what you see with your spirit. And you begin to, how many of you understand that your words become worlds and history becomes his story? There, there's nothing powerful or prophetic about talking about what is. There's nothing, there's nothing powerful about listening to Sean Hannity and repeating it as a prophecy. And I'm not against any of these people. You know, President Obama, I mean, I, I don't know how anyone feels about anything politically, but I just believe we're supposed to love people. And if he's a people, I believe you're supposed to love him. That's just my opinion. I could be wrong, but I thought I was quoting Jesus. So, and I, I you know, I want the best for people. So I, I respect my president. Um, even if I didn't vote for him, I still respect him. I still want the best for our country. But I don't stand back in our country and say, well, look at how, you know what, the, the, the debt's going to be this, you know, it's going to be 13 trillion, it's going to be 20 trillion, by, it's going to be, it's like, uh, you can keep saying that. I don't know what you're helping. I don't know, I don't know what's, I don't know how you're helping. I, I mean, what storm did Jesus not stop? What funeral did Jesus not ruin? Including his own. What person did Jesus, that came to Jesus, did he not heal? I mean, it's just like we're not called to, to be normal. Paul corrected the Corinthians and he said, you're acting like mere men. Stop acting human. You're called to be supernatural. Naturally supernatural. You're children of God. How many of you believe you're a child of God? Okay, then what are you worried about? God is your daddy. Hello. Yes, well, God is my dad. Um, I'm all stressed out. What, how can you be say that God's your daddy? You'd be stressed out. The guy, who, yeah, how many of you understand that you are the house of God? You're like a mobile home and he's always home. <laughs> Everywhere you go, God goes with you. I mean, what are you worried about? Well, I could die. You're going to heaven. <laughs> As my friend says, you can't threaten me with heaven. 
I was on a radio show yesterday in Denver, just a, uh, as a call-in show. You know, they do it on a telephone, so I didn't go to Denver. I was on this radio show, and this guy calls in, and he says, you know, um, I've heard, um, you know, Denver is the graveyard of, the, of prophetic ministry, and, and he's going on and on about how hard it is in Denver and how we have this, you know, there's this demonic spirit over Denver, and, and, and I'm finally like, hey, what's your question? He said, what do you think about that? I said, I think you got a big devil and a little God. I mean, I thought Jesus got defeated, I mean, I thought that Jesus defeated the devil on the cross. I don't know how we create a theology that re-empowers a disempowered devil. I'm not afraid of the beast, he's afraid of me. I'm not afraid of the Antichrist, he's afraid of me. It's true at all times that if I submit to God and resist the devil, he runs from me. I don't, anything else is not the Bible. I don't know why we create eschatologies that re-empower a disempowered devil. Jesus defeated him at the cross once and for all. Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. That would mean someone has none. Somebody has no, uh, listen, if I have all the pie, then that would mean Danny has none. Are you with me? I know, looks like I ate all the pie. <laughs> so if Jesus says, I have all authority, that means somebody has none. It means you're running from somebody who has no authority. And you're also building doctrines around somebody who's powerless. It's an illusion. Wizard of Oz, man behind a curtain. Are you following me at all? And so I think that part of the signs of the times is that we begin to dream again. We live in the last days, which is called great and glorious. And what's a sign of the last days? That old men begin to dream again. Young men have visions. That's the sign of the times. Not that we run in fear. Well, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Okay, we had those. How many believe we had wars and rumors of wars? Got that one fulfilled. There'll be earthquakes and famines. Did we have those? Fulfilled, checked off. Have we discipled all nations? Make disciples of all nations. Have we done that? Okay, not checked off yet. Have we done greater works than Jesus, John 14? That one checked off? No. How about Jesus' prayer? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Has that prayer been fulfilled? No, so I would say that we still have some more signs of the times to come. The ones that are left seem positive to me. just a thought, at least I'm having one. You know, Jesus didn't say, I mean, Isaiah didn't say, arise and reflect. He said, arise and shine. He didn't, we're not called to be the, the clone zone. You know what I'm saying? Isaiah 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us like sheep. He didn't say like dogs or cats. He didn't say like all of us like cats have gone astray. He said like sheep. You know how sheep go astray? They watch each other's butt and hope there's a shepherd up front. <laughs> well, Mildred, 99 sheep can't all be wrong. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, I, here's the prophetic word for the hour. Think. <laughs> just have one. I mean, listen, even if it's wrong, just think. Like, just do something different than anyone else. It just feels like everyone's trying to be like everybody else. And how many of you know that as soon as you copy someone else, then you're, 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 all you are, you're not an original anymore. You're a, you're a copy of, 
yeah, a copy of someone else. That's what I just said. Anyway, <laughs> I, I think it's important that, that we just begin to dream, that we begin to think, that we begin to, to have the courage to do something no one's ever done before, that we actually have permission to have the mind of Christ, to, um, to, to dream again. And um, so I want, I want to talk a little bit about that. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 says that by faith we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God so what was seen was not made by things that were visible. So the things were seen were not made from things that are visible. And um, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about vision and maybe in a little different way um, this afternoon. The things that were seen, see I think that everything that was seen, like you see this podium right here, that banner, this, this room, the trees, everything. Before they were ever seen in the physical realm, somebody envisioned them. Somebody saw them inside of their spirit. As a matter of fact, Jesus, a God said that we were made in his image and in his likeness. In his image means what God imagined we became. Are you with me? And, and so I really believe that it's important that we understand that, that everything begins in vision form, that God talks to us in pictures. And when I say vision, some of you are thinking like, well, I've never actually seen a vision. Uh, yes, you have. Like, just close your eyes right now. I want you to just close your eyes, and I want you to picture a pink elephant. I'm not kidding. I want you to picture a pink elephant, and when you can picture it, raise your hand. Okay, most of you. Okay, all of you. Good. Okay, the reason I had you picture a pink elephant is because you just pictured something you've never seen with your eyes. You've never seen a pink elephant with your eyes, but you saw it with your spirit. Now, I understand that wasn't the Holy Spirit, but my point is, is that the Holy Spirit writes on that same blackboard. He colors on that same screen. And so when I say vision, yes, I, I believe in open visions where you see a vision with your eyes, you close your eyes, it's gone, you open your eyes, it's there. That's called an open vision. But I believe that God most often speaks to us through visions of the mind. And that God is using the, the blackboard of your mind to give you impressions about things that he wants to see come, to, come about in our lives. And I believe that, I, I, I think that God wants, I, I believe we're in this season where God wants us to begin to dream again. He wants dreamers to dream, visionaries to envision, missionaries to, to mission. He wants, he wants givers to give. He wants helpers to help. And I, I, and I think that there's something on this generation about dreaming. And, um, you know, uh, Walt Disney is one of, my, one of my heroes, and he died in December 15th, 1966. And, um, you know, they had already began construction of Disney World. And so in 1971, they finished Disney World, and they were doing the ribbon cutting at Disney World. And Roy Disney was, was sitting in the front row and they brought up Mrs. Disney to kind of, um, you know, do the, if you will, the, the inauguration, uh, uh, the, the, the ribbon cutting. And the man sitting next to Roy Disney said, oh, if only Walt had seen this. And Roy turned to him and said, he did or you wouldn't have. I love the, the, one of my, my most famous quotes is, uh, is about Michelangelo. Michelangelo says, he saw the angel in the stone and he carved to set it free. He saw the angel in the stone, and he carved to set it free. Proverbs um, 
29, 18 says, without a vision, people perish. But happy is he who keeps the law. In fact, the, the NAS says, where there's no vision, the people are unrestrained, or they wander aimlessly. But happy is he who keeps the law. And um, I was thinking about this, like, where there's no vision, people perish, or they go unrestrained. But happy is he who keeps the law. I don't think that Solomon was talking about the law, like the, the law of Moses. I think he was talking about the law of restraint. In other words, it's kind of like this. If, see, I don't think that you ever create a, a positive by motivating people with a negative. Like, I don't think you can punish people into purity. You know, we have a, an organization called Moral Revolution. I don't think you can punish people into purity. I don't think, like, I don't think you can scare people uh, in, in, into, into virginity. I think those days are over. I mean, you say to young people, hey, that could kill you. They're like, I don't care if I die. Or you can go to hell. You're going to go to hell if you do that. My friends will be there. I, I, I just, I, we, have to, we have to rethink the way that we approach the world. So Proverbs, see, I don't think, like if you're fat, I don't think you get skinny by hating being fat. I, don't, I think you go to the gym the first day and you go work out, and the next day you, you come home from the gym, what happens? You're trying to move. See, I don't think hating being fat is going to get you back to the gym. See, without a vision, people perish. See, I, I think that you need a vision for a great body. If you have a vision, if you can catch a vision, if you say, when I get done working out after six months, I'm going to look like this. It's vision that gives pain a purpose. Without a vision, people perish, but happy is he who keeps the law. What's he talking about? He's talking about the law of restraint. I will restrain my options to capture this vision. I will, I will eat less. I will eat right. I will, I, will, I will work out every day. I will restrain my options. I will not eat ice cream because I have this vision to have this great body. I think that the world is full of, I'm going to punish you if you don't. I think the prophets have caught on to that. I don't know if you realize it, but you live on the, you live on the west coast of the most negatively, negative, more negative prophecies are about the west coast than any other place on the planet. You guys are inherently wicked. <laughs> and I'm included in that because I live on the west coast too. You know, I wrote to one of the prophets who was my friend. I said, stop helping us. It's like, we're going to scare you into righteousness. It's like, you, listen, you guys, you got pornography here, you got homosexuality here, you got, you know, you got, what else do you have, you know? And I was in a prophetic uh, roundtable, this is this last year, with a bunch of the famous, fa bunch of famous prophets. So like, there was 42 of us in the room. I wasn't the famous one, of course. And one of the prophets, and it was, it was three days long, you know, 10 hours a day for three days. And... They would, had a, you know, like they would have a subject and then different people, they would you know, come and share for half an hour on a subject and then different other prophetic people could stand up and share what God showed them about that. And One guy stood up, one of the fam very famous prophets who you probably would know his name, and he got up and he said, I believe that God's bringing back the days of Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> I raised my hand, I'm like, I agree with him. They kind of looked at me because they know, like, I'm, I'm not in that 
camp at all. And uh, they're like, look at me. And I said, I said, wouldn't it be cool if God only, like, only took two people's lives prematurely and thousands and thousands lied? Like, think about it. In our church, we have, I don't know, four or 5,000 people. If God killed everybody who lied in our church, who would be left? I think it'd just be Bill and I. And I'm not sure about Bill. So isn't it awesome that in 20, the, you know, the book of Acts covers 28 years, and in 28 years, only two people died for lying. That rocks. Bring back the days of Ananias and Sapphira. I'm telling you, when you don't have a vision, then you're trying to scare people into a new behavior. But I think that you can impregnate them into a new behavior. I think that the, I think the challenge that I think the challenge that we have in church, the challenge that we have in business, the challenge that we have in in, in ministry, the challenge that we have in government is that we don't have vision. I listened to one of the debates the other day, which is the first one I've watched. And I, and I listen to those guys talk against each other. I'm like, can someone tell me what you believe? Because I, I know what you don't. Can someone tell me what you stand for? Because I know what you don't. And I know what you don't like about the other guy. But someone tell me what you're dreaming. Tell me what you're dreaming about. Because I, I don't want to know what you're mad about that guy. I just want to, like, does anyone have anything to say? Well, I'll tell you what. He voted for this. I could give a rip about what he voted for. I wanted you to tell me what you see in your spirit. Talk to me. There's a great story in Genesis chapter 30, verse 27. You probably know the story, but it's the story of Jacob and Leban. Leban is Jacob's father-in-law. And Jacob is, you know, he's, he's not really having a good life, and his father-in-law is... You know, Jacob, the name in Hebrew, by the way, if your name's Jacob, don't worry about it, but if you're Hebrew and your dad names you Jacob, you know, it means liar. So, you know, you, you know Jacob, his dad doesn't like him, his brother doesn't like him, you know, his mother likes him. Your mother always likes you, you know? And you could be a drug addict, your mom's like, he's studying to be a pharmacist. <laughs> Isn't it true? I mean, think about it. You know, Jesus is 30 years old, and he's still listening to his mother. Remember that? He goes to a wedding, and she says they're out of wine. He says, it's not time for me to do miracles. She said, do miracles. He said, I only do what the Father, what I see the Father doing. And she says, I said, do miracles. I mean, it's just, you just listen to your mother. <laughs> I just have to think through that. Anyway. Anyway, so Jacob, back to Jacob. Jacob is pretty miserable. and His father-in-law's a, a, a bigger liar than he is. And he's got two wives because he got deceived into the second one, the first one actually. And, and so he, he's worked for his father-in-law for 14 years. And his father-in-law's a really good Jewish businessman and realizes that Jacob's making him rich. So he, Jacob says, I'm, you know, I'm leaving. And his father-in-law says, listen, uh, you know, if you stay, I'll give you a signing bonus. This is kind of the message Bible on steroids. And Jacob says to Levin, it doesn't matter what deal we make. You've changed, you have changed my deal ten times. How many of you have ever played games with people and every time you win a hand, they change the rules? 
And his father-in-law says, no, listen, you name the price and I'll pay it. And Jacob says, okay, I'll take all the spotted and speckled sheep and goats. You give me all the spotted and speckled ones, and, and if they're solid color, they're yours. If they're spotted and speckled, they're mine. And his father-in-law says, well, that's good. Okay, that's fine. And I'm sure Levin's probably thinking, man, Jacob's stupid. And then Jacob does something really strange. Do you know this story? He takes branches, and he carves spots and speckles in them, and he takes them down to the watering hole, and when the strong sheep and goats are mating, he puts the branches, the spotted and speckled branches, in, strong, in front of the strong sheep and goats. So when they're mating, what, what happens is when they're mating, they reproduce spotted and speckled sheep and goats. So over a period of a short time, all the, you know, all the sheep and goats that are dragging a leg and got a bad eye, they're all Levin's. And all the strong sheep and goats, they're all Jacob's. And one day I realized that that's not a lesson in agriculture. There's actually, there's this, this is actually a spiritual truth hidden, if you will, in the sands of time. See, you don't reproduce what you want to reproduce. You reproduce what you envision at the watering hole of reflection. Like, what do you see in the mirror of your life? You always reproduce what you see in your imagination. In other words, Proverbs put it like this, as a man thinks in his heart, not his mind, in his heart, so is he. Are you, are you following me? In other words, I believe that when you, when you envision something, you give birth to it. When you envision something, you give birth to it. And I just said this to our um, second year school ministry. Um, I teach on leadership the whole year for school of ministry, second year school ministry. I teach on leadership for the entire year. And yesterday, or uh, Wednesday, I said to the students, the difference between a good leader and a great leader is a good leader knows how to get you pregnant. I mean, a great leader knows how to get you pregnant with vision. See, something happens when you can see it inside of you. There is something, I'm saying, something inherently, there's something inherent about humanity that when I can see it, when I envision it, I want to give birth to it. Like the sheep, when I see it, I want to give birth to it. Like, like, like God, he created us in his image and his likeness. What he imagined, he gave birth to. Mary, the mother of Jesus, hears a word from an angel who says, you're going to be pregnant, you're going to be a virgin, you know the whole story, and says that Mary pondered, she pondered the word in her heart, and she gave birth, she gave birth to the Son of God. What did she do? She pondered, she, she thought, she, if you will, she meditated on the word, she envisioned the word, and she gave birth to the Christ. She was a virgin. Not through sex, there was, there was no sexual act in the birth of Christ. Now, I'm not saying if you picture a pinky elephant, you know, you're going to give birth to it or something. <laughs> I'm simply saying that if you realize how powerful your imagination is, how powerful, like, like, like the New Age movement knows all about it. You know, they, they're doing all this weird stuff with it. And yet, it was God, it was God who says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. It was God who said that the things that are seen were, were made from things that are unseen. And so I, I'm asking you, like, what are you dreaming about? Uh, I wrote this, the imagination is the womb of the soul where thoughts germinate. 
We are expecting the world, we, um, we are expecting, but the world will remain unaware of it until we start showing. Yet we are in labor for what we cannot describe. Let me just say it again. The imagination is the womb of the soul where thoughts are germinated. We are expecting, you know, we're pregnant, but the world remains unaware of it until we start showing. Yet we are in labor for what we cannot describe. I, I love this. Sometimes, sometimes we have something, we've seen something in our heart, but we don't, we can't put it to words. I love uh, Joseph and, and the way he works with Pharaoh and Daniel, the way he works with Nebuchadnezzar. It's so amazing. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Think about this for a minute. I mean, don't you think Nebuchadnezzar probably had many dreams? I mean, don't most people dream? Yes? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he has this dream of this statue, remember that? And then uh, some years later, he has this dream of this tree with all the birds in the air, this tree. He has a dream of the statue, and he doesn't know what the dream is. No, start over. He doesn't know what the dream means. Now, I would just like to suppose that Nebuchadnezzar's had many dreams, but somehow he knows that this dream is somehow related to his future. It's a weird dream about a statue and about golden head and all the way to the potter's feet. You know the story. I mean, this weird dream, he's willing to kill all the wise men in Babylon if they can't tell him the dream and tell him the interpretation. What am I saying? It's like, isn't it amazing that God takes a man who doesn't know him, gives him a God dream, like the answer for his kingdoms in this dream. I even like Joseph, uh, Pharaoh's dream even better. He has a dream of fat calves and skinny calves, and the Skinny calves eat the fat calves, seven of each, and you know the story about that. And here he has, I mean, what a weird dream. I mean, most of us are like, wow, bad pizza. But Pharaoh wakes up in the morning, and he has this dream, and it says that Pharaoh was troubled because he had a dream of seven fat calves and seven skinny calves, and the seven skinny calves eat the seven fat calves. And he's, listen, if I had a dream like that, I wouldn't think twice about it. I wouldn't even write it down. But there's some, but what I'm getting at is that he has a dream that comes with conviction. And what I'm getting at is this, he doesn't know it, but he's been impregnated by God. God has told him, he's carrying a message in code about his future, but he doesn't know what it means. Are you with me? He doesn't know what it means. He can describe it to you. Hey, here's my dream. I had a dream about seven fat calves and seven skinny calves and the seven skinny calves ate the fat calves. Okay, well, I know it means something. Well, how do you know that? I know it means something. I have this conviction in my heart that I have dreamt something powerful. But I don't know what it means. It's in another language. It's in hieroglyphics. But I am carrying a message that my whole, listen, the destiny of my nation is is being held in the balances, in the balance of this dream, and yet the dream is given to me in a language I do not understand. And Joseph comes in and interprets the dream. And you know, seven 
fat calves, seven good years, seven skinny calves, seven years of famine. Here's what you ought to do. My point is, is that I believe that Pharaoh's dreaming again. Pharaoh is dreaming again. Are you with me? See, see, think about this. Joseph has a dream when he's a kid. I'm going to be great. You're all going to bow down to me. Remember this? And then the sun and the moon are going to bow down to me. And his dad says, you mean your mother and I are going to bow down to you? He said the sun and the moon. But the Jewish mind understood that God speaks in parables. He speaks in symbols. The sun and the moon are going to bow down to me. And his dad's all, oh, you think you and not, your mom and I are going to bow down to you? Joseph has a dream. He doesn't realize it, but Pharaoh has a dream. I don't know if you're getting this. Maybe I should be more clear because I don't know where you guys are prophetically. The world is dreaming. The church is dreaming. We are partners in destiny. If, if Joseph doesn't have a dream, Pharaoh dies in a famine. If Pharaoh doesn't have a dream, Joseph dies in prison. The world is dreaming. You, are, you understand, Pharaoh is dreaming. You go to many movies. I'm not you know, encouraging you to go to all, you know, you understand. I'm not validating all movies. I just don't know you very well. Sometimes people take stuff I say, they put it on Facebook and YouTube. I'm like, oh, Lord Jesus, I don't even believe that myself. <laughs> I take one little section of, you know, here's a 30-second section of something Chris said. I'm like, oh, Lord Jesus, I was having a hiccup that moment. I'm not telling you to go to all movies. I'm saying, I'm saying you, you look at, you watch some of these movies and you're like, Pharaoh's dreaming. He doesn't know what he just said. And you watch this movie and you're like, you know what? He just made a movie, the fat calf, this metaphor, the fat calves and the skinny calves. He made a movie, he made a movie about his dream, but he doesn't know what his dream means. And I'm sitting in the movie and I'm like, this is what the dream means. He just dreamt of his future. And he doesn't even know it. And I'm telling you, Pharaoh is dreaming again. The world is dreaming. The movie 2012, it's about the end of the world. It's true. The world's coming to an end. And the kingdom is coming. This clarity. The world's not going anywhere. It's changing governments. Jesus said, make disciples of all nations. It's 2012. It's the year of government. It's the beginning of the kingdom coming in a new dimension. <laughs> Some of you just need to think about it for a while, I think. Without vision, people perish, but happy is he who keeps the law. In our school, we have what we call vision-based discipline. We used to, in our school ministry, you know, we have, I don't know, 1,600 students. Next year, we'll have over 2,000 students. We just, uh, we just leased the largest building. We just took over the civic auditorium in our community. Largest building in our town. They were going to close it because of budget restraints. We just leased it $1.8 million a year, so pray for us. And uh, we turned down 400 students last year. We started with 37 students 15, 14 years ago. And um, we, had, we, had 16, we graduated 1,600 students this last year. So we're just excited. We just, we just believe we were called to take over the world. 
<laughs> I mean in a good way, you know, it's like, <laughs> just be careful because that's what our city thinks we're, they're trying to take over Reading. The aliens are taking over Reading. See, the way we take over is like we serve, we, we serve into a place of, of leadership. We're, we're there to help our city. Um, but we have what we call vision-based discipline. And when we first started our school ministry, I mean, you know, the students have to, you know, obviously simple things like we, we want to be a culture of empowerment, we want to be a culture of honor, and we don't want to be a culture of control. But the truth is, is like we need you to do your homework. Like you actually have to come to class, and we're not really good with you like sleeping with your neighbor. Like that's love your neighbor part is not working out for us. And so, we, so, you know, here we are, we're trying to, like, you know, create this culture of honor and, and, and power and freedom, and at the same time, we need some things from you. And so we're trying to figure this out, right? We're trying to, like, you know, it's an experiment. Like, we say Bethel's one big laboratory. <laughs> I said that in Asia, they laughed. It's like, laboratory's a bathroom. I'm like, not a toilet. And so we just like, okay, if you miss, if you don't do your homework, you know, eight times, you're out of school. If you don't pay your bill, and, and then, you know, and, and every year we kind of like increase the pain. Okay, and we're going to pull your fingernails off. We'll pull one fingernail off if you're six days late, and two if you're, you know, it, it was like that. And then Danny Silk, you know, <laughs> entered our culture. And uh, the first couple of years, I said, would you come in and help us with our school? And so he's like, yeah. So for a couple of years, he was part of our school uh, leadership team. And, and his wife, Sherry, was also one of our leaders. But Danny would sit there like he does, just kind of quietly and listen. I, I talk <laughs> until I decide if I actually agree with what I believe. I'm not committed to what I say until I say it. <laughs> then I'm like, no, that's not what I meant to say it. No, that didn't say it. sounded so much better when I was thinking it than it did when I said it. <laughs> this is a true story. This is probably a year ago. I think Danny was there. I was preaching this message, and I got this thought while I was in the middle of my message, which happens. I do think sometimes when I'm preaching, I, was, I had this thought. So I, so I thought, man, this is the Lord. So I started teaching this whole thing kind of a rabbit trail for like 15 minutes. And then I got to the end of this rabbit trail and I realized that actually what I taught wasn't scriptural. So this is on Sunday morning. And I go, you know all that stuff I just said? That's wrong. I don't agree with it. <laughs> My people like, I said, I was just externally processing. I thought it was the Lord, but then I realized you know, the scripture is actually against what I just said. So d- delete that. Let's just keep going. Our people just like, Sorry, I thought I agreed with it until I said it. Then after I got done saying it, I realized the Bible was actually opposed to what I said. I thought it was the Holy Spirit, but it, it wasn't. Just get behind me, Satan. Let's just keep going. Okay. But Danny, you know, came into our meetings, and he would just begin to listen, and he's like, um, so I thought this was like a culture of honor and freedom and stuff. I'm like, it is. So, you know, what, what's the torture chamber for that's not a torture chamber. That's a tickle you to death chamber. <laughs> and he began to say things like, 
I'll never work, on, I'll never work harder on your problem than you do. And um, he began to teach us things like, hey, this is not my problem, this is your problem. Like, why are we taking ownership of their problem? Like, why is this our problem? If they don't do their homework, why is this our problem? Like, why don't we just send them home to work out their problem? Well, that's what I was thinking, too. <laughs> I just hadn't said it yet. I was going to say it at some point. And, and as, we, as we began to um, you know, process over a couple of years, actually, we started realizing that most of the time, students stop doing their homework. They come, to, they come to school the first few months. I mean, they pay their bill, right? They do their homework. They get to class on time. And it's like, ah, I'm on fire. What? What? What, what happens is, is that they begin to lose their vision. And what happens when you begin to lose vision? Without a vision, people go unrestrained. See, if you don't have a vision, you spend your time trying to stay out of pain or find pleasure. See, it's vision that gives pain a purpose. It's vision that says, I will go to the gym every day and work out because I'm going to look like that. I will do my homework. I will get to class on time because I, this is the way I see myself. Like, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be a sign and a wonder. I'm going to be a disciple who walks in signs. and I'm going to be a revivalist. That's what I came here for. But when, I begin, when the vision begins to fade, the behavior follows. So the question is, what are you dreaming about? So now our revival pastors sit down. And I'm not saying there's no place for discipline, of course. You know, Hebrews 12, if you're not, if you're not disciplined, you're a bastard son. I understand there's a place for discipline. I just mean it's not the first, it's not the only tool in my toolbox, and it's not the first thing I pull out. Okay, let me hit you with the hammer. Okay, that didn't work. Let's cut your head off. It's like, now, now it's like, okay, when somebody's not doing their homework, tell me what your dream is. Wow, I, I don't know. I don't know. But what did you come for school? What, why did you come to school? Like, you spent $4,000 to come to school, and you flew here from halfway across the world, and you left your, your job and, and your family and everything. Why did you come here? I, I don't know. <laughs> I know you don't know. I know that your behavior tells me that you have forgotten, that you can't see it anymore, that, you, that this pain is causing you, listen, this pain, without a vision, you're beginning to go unrestrained. You're beginning to not do your homework. You're beginning to not come to class. And you are a perfect example of somebody who's lost their vision. So I can try to punish you back into purity, or I can impregnate you with vision. And sometimes I impregnate you by asking you, what did you see when you came here? Because our students came, they, they sacrificed a lot to be there. So they didn't get here without a vision. They just lost it along the way. So it's like, you know, the plans of a man are like deep wells, but a man of understanding draws them out. So a man of understanding just comes along and says, tell me what's in there. I don't know. I'm just so disillusioned. You're disillusioned. You're having an illusion <laughs> instead of a vision. That's your problem. You're disillusioned. You're having an illusion, and you need a vision. What did you see when you, when you came here? Why did you come here? I can't even remember. Well, it was only like six months ago, so just think back. And pretty soon, what happens is a man of understanding begins to draw out what's in there. We can do it with our teenagers, right? We can do it with our young people. And they start to act crazy and like, my son's always just, you know, 
just been a straight-A student, and, and, and now he's flunking out. Now he's like, well, what's the problem? Well, there could be lots of problems, but if he doesn't have a vision, he's going to go unrestrained. We have an organization called Moral Revolution. It's dedicated to, um, it's, it's dedicated to moral purity. One of the things we say to our uh, people is like, why do you have a sex drive years before God wants you to have sex? Well, I don't know, I guess he just, uh, he's a killjoy. <laughs> like, let's just, let's just put all these hormones in him and then watch him and tell him no. He just enjoys trying to kill me. It's like, no, listen, the value of your virginity is in the blood, sweat, and tears it takes to get your virginity from the battlefield all the way to the honeymoon suite. So on the night that you lay with your lover, you have something to give them that you had to fight to keep. The greater your sex drive, the greater the trophy you present to your lover on the honeymoon night. Are you with me? So we teach young people, listen, you got to figure out who you are before you figure out what you do. So think about this, you know. If you're 13 and you decide, I'm going to be a virgin. See, if you don't decide you're going to be a virgin... Your mama, your daddy, you listen, what, what are they going to do? They're going to wrap you in duct tape? Make a chastity belt out of duct tape and take it off when you get 18? And what are they going to do? Really? You're going to lock them up in a room and feed them through a knot hole? What are you going to do? Well, my, you know what? If you, if you, if you have sex with someone, you could, have, you could get STDs, you could get HIV, you could get, let's see, you, you could go blind. People go blind, you know. Yeah, yeah, your father's wearing glasses. So that's... <laughs> hey, they need to know all that kind of stuff, but listen, that's not going to get them. That's not going to get their virginity to the honeymoon suite, I guarantee you. And they, they need to know, like, why would I go through all this pain? What's the reason I'm going through all this pain? And so, uh, you know, we begin by talking about who are you? And we call it core values, like who you are is your core values, the way you see the world. See, if I'm a girl and I'm 13, and I decide at 13, I'm a daughter of the king. I was called for purity. I want to be a virgin. Then in 17, I'm in a car with some guy who wants to do me. Guess what? I don't have to decide what to do because I already decided at 13. I made the decision four years earlier when I decided who I'll be. Are you following me? See, my vision needs to come out of my core values. Who am I? My core values determine what I allow myself to dream about. They're, they're, the, they're the, pro, the prophets of my destiny. My core values. Who am I? Who am I? I mean, you know, perversion, wrong version. If I am dreaming of another woman, I have this vision of another, this other woman. Guess what? I'm using the tools that God gave me to create, but out of the wrong core value. Are you, are you following me? This is not who I am. And so my core values create the boundaries in which I allow myself to envision. Are you following me? So you should write this down. Write down. Core values are who... Write down, first of all, write who? No, who, <laughs> yeah, thank you. All right, we're all owls. That's who we are. We're an owl. Live in darkness. 
Who is your core values? Got it? Why? Write down why. Why is your, is your mission? Is your mission. It's your purpose. Write down purpose right next to mission. What is your vision? What is your vision? And right, right next to that, what does it look like? If I can describe it, if I describe it 20 times and I can't see it, it's not a vision, it's a mission. Write down how. How is the plan? How is a plan? The plans of a man are ordered by the Lord. Okay, when is goals. And goals are accomplishments with a date. No date, it's not a goal, just a pipe dream. I want to take just the next few minutes and talk about this part. There is a lot of leaders that don't know the difference between a mission and a vision. In fact, I hear people use them simultaneously. The Bible doesn't say without a mission, people perish. It says without a vision. But there are, now, I'm going to use the word missionary in a completely different way than probably most of us have ever used it. I believe there are a lot of people who are missionaries. They're purpose-driven, but they're not vision-driven. I think there are a lot of missionaries in this room. And it's good, because, listen, if you have a vision that has the wrong mission, (laughs) wouldn't it be a bummer to accomplish your vision and find out the purpose of your vision wasn't in the heart of God? So what I'm getting at is this. Is mission is not vision. Mission is why you're doing what you're doing. Why are you doing this? So I can say to you, listen, we are very involved in Africa, so I can tell you all about Africa, why we need to build orphanages, why we need to build, we call them children's villages. And I can, I can tell you all about this. We're going to build this children's village because the, you know, the average age uh, in, in Mozambique, the life expectancy of a Mozambican is 32 years old, a whole generation's dying off, children are going, uh, in, they're in the streets, they're, this could be the next generation of leaders, but they are dying in the streets. Children are dying in the streets because of starvation, because of no fatherhood, no motherhood, da-da-da. I can tell you all about that, and that's purpose, and you're like, you get really excited, you're all, you go, that's awesome, and you, 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 you fly to, to Africa, to Mozambique, to Maputo, where we're building a, uh, a, a children's village, and you get there, and it's just dirt, and you're like, and I go, go ahead and just get started before we get there. If you get there first, you just start. Guess what? You can't build one thing with a mission. If you, if, you, if you set up a wall, the chances that it's in the wrong place are about 99%. See, until you see it, until you have a vision, are you with me? Until you have a vision, you really can't help. So mission will get you there, but vision will keep you there. 
And I listen to leaders, marketplace leaders. We work with a lot of government leaders in countries. I hear from the podium, I'm telling you, like, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be political. But there are so many politicians, if they actually just had more than a mission, if they could actually paint a vision, people would get impregnated. Because I, I told our leaders, I started to tell you this, the difference between a good leader and a great leader is that great leaders know how to take their vision and impregnate other people with it. And once people see it, they want to give birth to it. Are you with me? What's the secret of getting people to follow you and to accomplish something together? Learn how to get people pregnant with vision. Because once they see it, they have to give birth to it. Think about it. I know, you know, if I could step back maybe 15 years, if you were going to build a 10, well, let's say, let's say we're going to do something, we're going to build on to a building for $100,000. And we're going to take an offering in this room for $100,000. I bet you we could raise $100,000 in here pretty easily. So how many understand that the greater the sacrifice, the clearer the vision has to be? The greater the sacrifice an environment requires determines the size of people who follow. The level of sacrifice that an environment requires determines the size of people who follow. Or let me put it this way, the size of visionaries who follow. So if I want to raise $100,000 in here, I might be able to get up here and just tell you about the purpose. And you, we might be able to take a big enough offering to raise $100,000. But guess what? If I want to build a $40 million building from the people that are in this room, first of all, probably not going to happen. But I'm going to have to figure out some way to get you pregnant with the vision. Now here's the challenge. You may not agree with this, but I've worked with a lot of bankers, and bankers and finance people are typically not visionaries. That's why they're bankers, because they're not entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are visionaries. They see something, and it's 40 million, 100 million, a half a billion, and because they see it, it seems totally it doesn't seem like a risk at all. It seems totally doable because I've already seen it in another realm. When I walk in and tell the banker, I can tell by looking in his eyes that he thinks I'm crazy. Yes, I'm pregnant and I've had no sexual intercourse. Seriously. Yeah, the angel showed up and talked to me. Really? Uh-huh. Yeah, what have you and Joe been doing? No, listen, Seriously. I'm a banker, looks like that. So what do I have to do to get the finance people to actually, to actually finance my vision? I have to get them pregnant. And most financers, or let me just not say most, many financers aren't visionaries. In other words, when I said, how many of you can envision a pink elephant? And almost everybody raised their hand. If bankers were in here, most of them wouldn't raise their hand. Pink elephant, I've never seen a pink elephant. That can't be real. No, I don't see that. I don't believe that. It ain't right. Why do I build a $40,000 model when I already need $40 million? Why do I add $40,000 to the project when I already can't afford the project? Because if I can get you pregnant with a vision, vision will 
gives pain a purpose. Vision inspires you. Now I realize now, probably more likely to spend $40,000 to do a virtual reality, you know, what, what would you call it? Walk through, you know, visual aid. But my point is, is that you're spending money on something you're just gonna throw away when the building's over. But why are you doing that? Because you realize that if you can see it, you're gonna get pregnant with it and you're gonna wanna give birth to it. It's just the way you're created. We, um, Iris Ministry, we work with Iris Ministry, who, um, has, they have 10,000 churches in Mozambique, Africa. They're feeding 10,000 children a day. It's, it's a really powerful ministry. It's Heidi and Roland Baker. And they had a plane that, um, that they would go from, you know, uh, Mozambique, Africa's pretty rough territory. And so um, they have uh, these Land Rovers, but most of the places, the remote places, they built these dirt runways and they fly in there with, with a plane. And then they fly in there with a plane and they do these crusades and they build churches in there and they feed children and start build orphanages. It's pretty amazing. Well, two years ago, their plane crashed. Nobody got hurt, thankfully. But um, they talked to uh, this particular... Um, airplane manufacturer about building them a specific plane. In fact, actually what happened is this missionary organization went to this plane company and said, listen, we, we need planes that are like this for these runways. To, they, they need to carry extra cargo. They need all this stuff. So um, the owner of this manufacturing, uh, this plane manufacturer, met Roland and Heidi Baker and said, listen, I'll give you this plane, this, pl this prototype plane. It's not a prototype anymore, but it's they saw this prototype and said, we'll build you this plane. One of the first ones that comes off the assembly line, we'll have it done this coming year, and we'll sell it to you for cost, which is $1.7 million. Well, someone gave a million dollars to it um, right away, and, um, and so we, we have now four months to raise $700,000. So we're talking about like, okay, you know, it's pretty easy to raise money to feed the children. It's a little harder to raise money for a, a new plane. And people are like, hey, I'm driving an old car. Why would I buy you a new plane? And it's like the wealthy people are flying around Africa. And so we created this video for the, the plane. And in the video, we, we had to do two things. First of all, we had to make sure you see the plane. And secondly, we have to make sure that you could see the vision. And thirdly, what happens when you connect the vision with the mission? In other words, this is the why, and this is what it looks like. Three minutes long, first, first week, $350,000 comes in just from, the, from just putting it up on a website. So I think, I think we've had almost all the money raised. It's been up like three weeks. All I'm saying is when people can see it and they understand why you're doing it, there's something about the fact that they want to, they, they will restrain their options. They'll say, Instead of us buying a new car, we will buy you a new plane. We'll drive this old car for one more year because we are pregnant with your vision. Are you following me? George Bernard Shaw said, you see things as they are and say why. I dream of things that never were and ask why not.
P.K. Bernard said, a man without a vision is a man without a future. A man without a future will always return to his past. Danny brought that to us first, I think. You want to inspire people, get them pregnant. Two things I want to finish with. First one is, what are you dreaming of? What are you dreaming about? Probably two-thirds of our students, you know, I say, what are you dreaming about? It's like, well, I just don't know. I'm like, that's not a good answer. You need to have a dream. And then once you have a dream, you better have a dream. You better be dreaming so big that you can't, you can't finish it yourself. You better be dreaming bigger than you. So the next question is, how are you going to get pre- people pregnant with your dream? I want to read you just part of Martin Luther King's speech. And I want you to see if you can, if you can pull out, if you can draw out of this speech why Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King, was able to re- lead a revolution. Listen to this. I have a dream. Let us not waller in the valley of despair, I say to you today, my friends. And even so, Though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, still I have a dream. It's a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out its true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even in the state of Mississippi, the state swelling with the heat of injustice, swelling with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into, the, into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with all its vicious racism, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of indisposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, these little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with the little white boys and little white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley will be exalted and every hill and mountain will be made low and the rough places will be made smooth and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh will see it together. There is our, this is our hope, this is our faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith we'll be able to hew out mountains of despair into stones of hope. With this faith, we'll be able to transform the juggling discords of our nation into, the beautiful, into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we'll be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will one day be free. Did you notice that he didn't just give you a purpose? Did you notice that all through his speech, there were pictures that you could see? Way down in Alabama, I saw these four black boys with the four white boys, and they were together. What was he doing? He was painting a picture while he was giving you a purpose. Do you have a dream? Would you just, can I just pray for you? It's time for us to dream again. 
It's time for us to have vision. I'll tell you, the difference between an America being powerful, righteous, and prosperous, or living in despair with a huge national growing debt is actually a dream. I'm telling you the difference between Egypt failing and falling into famine or becoming the richest nation on the planet was a dream. I'm telling you, our nation doesn't need one more politician. It needs dreamers. Dreamers who can dream. Are you with me? Dreamers who can dream. I have a dream about our city, that our city would be the first city in America at Redding, California. I hope you're dreaming about yours. But that our city would be the first city in America that virtually has no crime. That everybody who wants a job can have a job. Where children can go out on the streets at 10, 11 o'clock at night in every neighborhood in our community and know that they would not be kidnapped, that they would not be, they would not be harmed or hurt. I have a dream that our women could be powerful in our city, that they wouldn't be treated as second class or third class citizens, that poverty would be eradicated in our city, that our city would be a beautiful city, that when people drive into our city, they would know that the kingdom has come. I have a dream that crime and that, and, and, and that, and that every kind of corruption would be driven out of our city, that abortion wouldn't be allowed in our city, and that you couldn't get to hell from our city. And Lord, so I pray that you would give us a vision, not for our little pea-sized life, but Lord, that you would give us a dream that's so big that without you, we couldn't accomplish it. Lord, I pray right now that if one man, like Martin Luther King, can shift the culture, what can 150 people in a room like this do? I just have this deepest sense that the weight of the nation's destiny lies in this room. I mean that sincerely. I have this, I have this sincere burden, this sincere sense that there are people in this room that are going to help turn the economy, that are going to help turn the tide of this nation's future. And Lord, I just pray for that right now, that dreamers would dream, that we begin to not look at what we're not, that we stop taking inventory of what we can't do, what we're not doing, what we're not able to do, and we'd be like the little boy who had some fishes and some loaves. <laughs> Lord, that you would take what we have and that you would multiply it that you would feed the world through our little dream. Lord, I pray right now that you would release faith in this room and that you would dispel fear. Lord, that we would go home to our families and we would begin to lead our own families. We begin to have a dream for our children. We begin to draw dreams out of our children and implant dreams into our children. That our children would realize that they were called to be history makers. They were called to be revivalists. They were called to be people who make a difference, and who are called to significance. Superman, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman. <laughs> Our children were called, they're being, they're, they're being, come on, they're being summoned by cartoons. Their destiny is being summoned by cartoons, but not by their parents. Yeah, the reason why television is having a greater effect on children than, than parents is because television dreams. 
and their parents have stopped dreaming. Lord, let us stop complaining and start dreaming. We just release that over every single person in this room, that we would leave this place today and that we would leave this conference with the sense of destiny. I was born to make a difference. I was born to dream. Amen. Thank you very much.